What's going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host, of course, is Canucks insider Thomas Trance, also covering the team for The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. A lot to get into today, Drancer. Canucks game day. You are still in Ottawa, where the Canucks and the Senators will play uh, in just a few hours from now at 4 o'clock. What's going on? I want to be clear. I haven't stepped foot in Ottawa. I'm in Canada. Sorry. Okay. Even worse. Yeah. Yeah, I'm... It's a six-day road trip through Toronto, Montreal, and and Ottawa. Sounds great. Three of those days you'll spend in Canada. Oh, not so great. Um, Yeah, no, it's the third day in Canada that always gets you, Jamie. Oh, yeah. How many many empty fields can you see from your hotel room? (laughs) Oh, none, but lots of parking lots. And and if I walk 20 minutes, I'll I'll get to a Moxie's. Um, Anyway. Yeah, Canada. Looking forward to tonight and looking forward to this game and looking forward to talking about not the 2017 NHL entry draft. Um, the Vancouver Canucks uh, held a very optional skate, seven people on the ice, including, or seven skaters on the ice, including Teddy Bluger and Thatcher Demko, who skated for a long time uh, with the optional group or the group that declined to take the option. Uh, JT Miller, Dakota Joshua among them. And so that means Casey DeSmith goes tonight Mm -hmm. and looks like he'll get two of three on this road trip, which is in line with, you know, what what Rick Tockett suggested to me yesterday, but but in in not so many words. I mean, he didn't come out and say it, but he certainly gave me enough uh, context about how he's considering this, how he's thinking about this, that I was able to pretty confidently assert that this was a possibility on the show yesterday. So it has come to pass. The Canucks will give DeSmith a fair bit of run here and give Demko like Demko will have basically played uh one made made one start in a 10-day period mm-hmm. by the time the Canucks host the New York Islanders uh presuming that they don't start Demko back to back this weekend which I, I find it uh, impossible to imagine given their disciplined goalie split to this point um I love it like I love it I think I think resting your starter like in no world in no world are the Canucks like making it to the Western Conference final, right? Because we now live in a world where that sh- that should be the bar. That should be sort of where we're beginning to look here. Um, if Demko isn't at his best in April and May, like if you think about what Demko's done the last month and what this team has done over the last twelve games, like you know, it, yeah, sure, the bounces have been in their favor, but you know what? The bounces were also in the favor of the Florida Panthers last spring and and it got them within three wins of a Stanley Cup like yep. you know if you have if you get Demko playing like this in April and May I mean no, who wants to face that nobody nobody literally nobody uh so I mean this is this is how it's done you know if you're able to keep him I know 58 to 62 feels like the sweet spot for a starter but 55 like can we talk about 55 yep. can we talk about 50 um, if DeSmith plays well enough, like that should absolutely be in the cards because if you get to where you want to go, you know, you're still going to have him starting game 75, 76 o- over an eight month span. 
uh, by the time you're playing for what really matters. And the Demko side of this is obviously first and foremost. That's the prime thing here, right? Is okay, we want to keep Demko healthy. We want to balance leaning into how well he's playing while also preserving his health, his energy, all of that for later on in the season. I think from a DeSmith's perspective, though, as well, I mean, he hasn't played since that Rangers game, which was October 28th, right? So if he doesn't get in tonight and you give Demko the game on Saturday, that's a two-week gap, more than a two-week gap before uh, DeSmith gets in on Sunday against the Montreal Canadiens. And if your plan is to really try to make sure that Demko gets his rest during the season, well, part of that is Casey DeSmith has to be good. He has to be sharp. He needs a certain amount of regular game action here. It goes hand in hand. You're resting Demko. You're also giving Casey DeSmith a chance to get back in the crease and continue to just build that trust and establish that trust uh, with the with the coaching staff. And, you know, I know we've made this point a lot, but again, this is what winning gets you, right? It gets you the freedom and the flexibility to play your backup two out of three games probably in all likelihood on an, on an Eastern Canadian road trip, right? And I also think there's a, an element here too where – you know, as we look at uh, how the schedule sets up favorably for the Canucks on this trip, they might get a backup from Ottawa tonight. I know Jonas Corposalo played against Toronto last night, right? So it could be Anton Forsberg. So that makes the decision yeah. a little bit easier here, I'm sure. But again, it's it's sticking because they've banked these points. It makes it so much easier to stick with the long-term outlook. You get a chance to get to Smith in, keep him sharp, while also keeping Thatcher Demko fresh. Well, they're also making it off the front foot and they're making this decision off the front foot where they haven't overutilized Demko to this point, um, in part because it's one thing when you're 9-2-1 and one, to go out on a three-game road trip and face three teams on the second leg of back-to-backs and be like, yeah, we're going to give our backup two of three. Like, that's one thing. But when the Canucks rolled to Smith out in the second game of the season against the Oilers – you know, to press their advantage after that snow day home opener. Mm-hmm. Like, that was bold. That was bold. And when they rolled DeSmith out in Sunrise, Florida, on the heels of back-to-back losses, that was bold. Yeah. Right? Like, that took that I, took real discipline. The Rangers game. Now, the Rangers game was bold. Yeah. Right? That was, like, they that was, because that was the second half of a back-to-back where they were playing St. Louis, and it was Saturday night against Shesterkin. And I would have looked at that and said, oh, yeah, they're absolutely going to give this give to Smith the Blues game and, and Demko the Shesterkin game. Yep. And, well, for sure. And so here we are on the front foot. Canucks, you know, I think I think at this point, too, the expectations, like when the Canucks played the way they did against the Rangers and beat the Stars 2-0 uh, and then, you know, that hilarious game against the <laughs> Oilers on Monday – you know, going into those games, if the Canucks had, like, lost narrowly, like, if the Stars game had taken a different shape and it had been, like, a 3-2 loss or even a 2 nothing loss with, with basically the performance reversed and everyone's mm. like, man, Ottinger robbed the Canucks on those two glorious chances and, like, the Sharks, you know, closed the game uh, maturely in the third. What do you expect? It's a Pete DeBoer team. That team's flying. Like, people wouldn't have been disappointed. You know, like people would have understood, I think, and and I still think we'd be talking about this hot start. You know, it wouldn't have interfered with the big picture narrative around this team. But I do think the expectations change now on this road trip. Like, given the way it shakes out, given given this like sends team in turmoil, and we'll ask Ian Mendez about that shortly when he joins us this segment. um, You know, I, I think I think it'll feel different if the Canucks don't come out with at least two of three. Uh, on this road trip. Like, I think this team's performed to a level 
where they've kind of earned some, you know, I, I, I don't even want to say confidence. They've earned expectation. Yes, they've earned, you know? they've earned higher standards. Right. Part of being good is the standard becomes higher. And I think in in some ways it's actually like the biggest compliment we can pay to this team. Right. Is that we're not totally shifting from, uh oh, when's the bottom going to fall out to, okay if this if the team is this good and we're starting to think it might be or at least something close to being very good. Right. Then what are the expectations that come with that? And we start having those conversations. And I think ultimately, I mean, that's not a negative thing. That's not being negative. That's recognizing how well the team is playing and adjusting your expectations, adjusting what you what you expect to see from them accordingly. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, I know I know Mendez is probably on the line, so we don't have a ton of time. We can get back to this discussion in the second segment. I do want to note, though, for for those of um, those of our listeners who follow along closely with uh, with our dialogue and our show, I, I did approach Besser with my uh, theory about moving around on the power play, making him perfectly suited to this moment, and he uh, he was like, "Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that." And it's always nice when you get a when you get like this is one of those things that are in you know the t- it's all in the tone. It's one thing when you get the like, ah, oh, I haven't thought about it like that. And it's like, yes, I've hit on something interesting versus the I don't think about it like that. Yeah. You know, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, I haven't so thought I- about it like that for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the latter or I got the former, which is a far, far better uh, answer and some interesting commentary. Uh, you know, read that in an upcoming notebook at The Athletic or, or, or maybe tonight if the Canucks power play has another good game. Uh, now joining us, as mentioned, he is a senior writer with The Athletic and also uh, host of The Athletic NHL podcast, co-host of The Athletic NHL podcast, based in Ottawa, joining us to talk about the Sens. He is Ian Mendez. Ian, thank you very much for doing this. How are you? Hey, guys. Doing great. Uh, looking forward to uh, to seeing Drance in the press box tonight and, uh, and, and Likewise. hopefully entertaining game. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, – yeah, we're – I mean, we're excited for this Eastern Canadian road trip of the Canucks, you know, like hot start. Now they get to go out and uh, and do it in the, the bright lights of the extra media attention in Ontario and Quebec. But, you know, I do want to focus on uh, the Senators' side of things. They get a big 6-3 win last night in Toronto. And given, you know, the comments from Brady Kachuk, just the overall amount of turmoil – around this organization how important was that win last night against the Leafs it, it was huge and and I don't want to say you know job saving or season defining because really we'll, we'll know the answers to those questions down the road but and you guys know this from from the last few few years in Vancouver at some point in your market the temperature boils over and yep. it might be a random game and for Ottawa it was a random game Saturday night against Tampa they lose, and the crowd is chanting, fire DJ. Brady Kachuk is pretty hot after the game. And so now you've reached, okay, we've reached the boiling point. What happens from here, I think, really dictates kind of how maybe the season goes or certainly how the rest of the month goes. And to respond in a manner in which they did, uh, you know, fairly different. I know the game was kind of up in the air in the third period, but a, we'll call it a definitive statement win is huge because what it does for tonight, at least to start this game, and in the first half of the game, I don't think you're going to see a toxic environment inside the arena. I don't think you're going to see the residual effects of what we saw on Saturday, which was they got booed off the ice and the fire DJ chance. It, it gives everybody a chance to breathe. And maybe, hey, listen, if they get off to a great start, you guys know how it is. Everybody's back on the bandwagon. And it just it allows you 
to have a little bit of breathing room, but they don't have much time because, you know, obviously it's a less than a 24-hour turnaround for this one. So how much of, and I know it can be hard to really gauge, especially when tempers are so high, like what exactly is driving it and what's the, you know, the, the main cause on any given night like that. But from your sense of, you know, the fan base, as you said, booing and chanting fire DJ, is that more because of disappointing results on the ice or more because of just the overall, you know, the Shane Pinto thing, the, uh, you know, the, the Pierre Dorian leaving because the Dadanov situation, like everything going on with this team, is it, which do you think is more driving the dissatisfaction from the fans or at least the dissatisfaction we saw on Saturday? Yeah, I think it's all on the ice, guys. I really do. And I think it's an exhaustion point to have your season submarined in November repeatedly. And that's the issue. The issue isn't that, uh, you know, the fans are angry that the, you know, the off-ice news cycle is as heated up again. I think most of us look at that and say, this has nothing to do with the new ownership, nothing to do with the new regime. The Dorian stuff, that was 18 months ago. The Pinto stuff, that happened when it wasn't on their watch. This has nothing to do with dysfunctional ownership. This has everything to do with you can't seem to get out of the gate. Like, um, and it would be one thing if every year Ottawa got to April and they just missed out of the playoffs by a point. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening is they're tripping over themselves every year in November. And then they kind of rally in the middle of the season. And then they fall last year. It was six points short. The year before, I think it was – they weren't even close. But that's the frustration. Guys, they, this is the longest playoff drought in Canada. It's six years. And I know it doesn't sound like a long time, especially you talk to a Buffalo Sabres fan, uh, and it's twice as long. Maybe six years doesn't feel like an eternity, but it feels like an eternity in this market. When you've been through the, the, the craziness of the previous ownership regime, the, 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 the depths of losing so many games, uh, all, it was all supposed to turn around. And, and that's all. That's all that, that this dissatisfaction was. I can't believe we're doing this in November again. Like we're okay. If you, if you get to April and you're at 92 points and you miss out on the last game of the year, no problem. That no one's going to have a problem with that. But when you don't even allow yourself to get there and it's been three or four years in a row of that, it it becomes frustrating. In, I mean, new ownership, multiple investigations. I mean, how, frustrated is this market at this point with how this season has begun it's it's hot it, it is it's it's really frustrated uh frustrating i think because you just thought all of last year that when the team was for sale and whether it was ryan reynolds you snoop it, whatever all that stuff didn't matter all you really cared about was wow we got an exciting new chapter and it's coming and you know mike antlauer i really do believe is the right owner for this team he just inherited a, a strange situation. And so I don't think any of the frustration that's happening right now is pointed at the owner at all or at Steve Stales. Like the, the guy's been on the job for 11 games. So like any of the frustration you're seeing, it's all a result of, okay, this is six years. And I think in a Canadian market, six years, a long time to go between playoff uh, appearances. And, and, you should be able to conclude a complete rebuild and be ready to challenge at some point in that window. And I can't sit here today and definitively tell you that they're a playoff team. And that's the point where fans are just saying, we want to get to that point. We're not even 
the way we've started, like, I, I, I mean, I didn't check the standings again this morning, but I mean, they're last in the Eastern Conference. Like, like you can sell hope up until a point. And then at some point, the fans say, okay, we're not buying hope. We need tangible results. Mm. The, the, the time for selling hope, that was 18 months ago. That was two years ago. Now they need a new message and it's tangible results on the ice. You know, I just remember being here last year, Ian, and it was like right after uh, some pointed commentary about Boudreaux, uh, players describing it openly uh, as the bleep show uh, on the Canucks side. Uh, meanwhile, things were relatively placid by Ottawa Senators' terms anyway, uh, as the club sort of, yeah, sure, there was a looming sale and, and everything, but it felt like uh, quiet, relatively speaking, around the Senators. This year, stories completely reversed. Um, <laughs> I mean, for, for players in that room, right, how frustrating is it to, to have that sense of an organization in the team's way? Yeah, and you know, and I think that was, and and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, our, our colleague Pierre LeBron uh, with with the Athletic uh, had a chance to sit down with Steve Stales on Wednesday, yesterday in Toronto, and Stales went into the team, uh, I believe it was on on Monday, and had a meeting with the players, and had a meeting where and Daniel Alfredson spoke, and I think that was really important because if you just only read the clips or saw the sound bites you would have seen Brady Kachuk kind of getting agitated, Claude Giroux saying he's tired of this fan and media negativity. And you would have thought, man, things are boiling over. And Steve Stales basically went in there and he's like, guys, we need to calm it down right now. Like, just calm it down. Like, we can only control what we can control, and we're not controlling anything right now. And so I think, I think there was a frustration level for sure amongst the players, especially, like, you got to remember, if you're Brady Kachuk um, – you were drafted in 2018, and you haven't even sniffed the playoffs, right? Like, you haven't even had a chance to be in the mix to be a playoff team. And at some point, that wears thin. You know, at some point, that becomes exhausting as a player. And what you don't want is, you know, remember, like, six or seven years ago, we thought, my goodness, the, Buff- the Buffalo Sabres, they're on the, they're on the mm. verge. They got Eichel, they got, they got Reinhardt, these programs are ready to turn around, and it never did. And, you know, uh, 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 Drancer, you would know this really well. Like, you think back to those old Florida teams, you know, with, with, the, with like, the Ole Jokinen, Stephen Weiss, mm. all the, like, like you always were like, oh, it's a good young core. At some point, it's going to happen, and it just never did. And that's what you're fearful of if you're Ottawa. is like, are we just going to be in this perpetual state of next year's our year? And, and that's where there's some frustration. But I think, I think Steve Sales did a great job from the sounds of it of, just going in and calming them down. And they haven't had a calming presence in kind of the executive chair or GM chair or anything like that in, in a long, long time here. So as you said, you know, they're trying to take that step from being a promising young core to a, a legitimate playoff contender year in, year out. What do you see that's holding them back right now from being able to take that step? Maybe they do this year, but again, as you said, a little bit of a disappointing start out of the gate. What do you see holding them back right now? What, what, what really does hurt them, and this is an absolute, this is not an excuse. This is a bit of an explanation, but you might have seen last night Jake Chickren played 31 minutes. Yep. And, and that's not normal. That's not right uh, at this time of year. This isn't April or May. Uh, this, is, this is November. And they got a young kid, um, uh, Nicholas Mantapalo, who I think didn't even play six minutes last night. And the reason is Ottawa right now is missing Thomas Shabbat, 
Artem Zub, Eric Brandstrom. And those are three of your top six D. I'm not going to say they're, they're your best three D because I think Jake Sanderson might be their best defenseman. And I think there's a case that, that Chikrin might be number two. But Shabbat is one of their best three. Zub is one of their best three or four. Uh, you know, Brandstrom's a top six guy. So when you don't have that, it hurts. And it forces you to play Chikrin 31 and, and guys that you're not comfortable with. So that, that's part of it. Goaltending has just been okay. Not, not, it's not the reason why they're struggling. It's just been okay. And last night, I thought Kopisala was a lot better. You, you, you'll probably see Anton Forsberg tonight. Uh, they need him to be a little bit better. And, and then I think what has really been tough on them is the, the penalty kill hasn't been great. And that's going to be a challenge tonight, right? Because what's the Canucks power play at? Like 30-something percent? Like yeah. um, whatever it's humming at. And Ottawa's had a problem because, uh, you know, Zub is a huge penalty killer for them. And, you know, uh, um, Brandstrom kills penalties for them. So that's going to be a challenge for them is that the, the penalty kill hasn't been great. The, the defense is banged up. And just some of the attention to detail in their own zone uh, hasn't, hasn't been ideal. Ian, as the Canucks set out on this barnstorming tour of Eastern Canada, 9-2-1, and one, riding high, um, there's a sense of defiance in the Vancouver market, right? A sense that perhaps the Eastern media hasn't seen enough for this team or paid attention to this dreamlike start that they're on. What's the sense? What's the curiosity from, you know, one of those dastardly Eastern media types uh, about where this team is at and w- what can they prove on this road trip? Well, listen, before you label me dastardly Eastern media, <laughs> I, I still have my, listen, I'm a Richmond guy. I'm a lower mainland guy. I, uh, I'm a Matthew McNair guy. So I don't, I don't get to get painted with that brush. And, and, and I'm a guy, listen, guys, my last year of high school was 94. It's the Bure, Ronning, Lyndon, yep. McLean. Like, I will always have a soft spot for the Canucks. So I'm probably the wrong guy to ask because I always have an eye on them. But I love how, to me, they have completely defied a lot of the preseason expectations. And, and, and I love your notebook column about just the little things Rick Pocket is doing right now. And you want to talk about Jack Adams nominees. Like, how do you not put him at the top of the list with that kind of attention to detail and, and working with guys and, 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 and being a communicator and, and just doing all these things. And it's amazing. And this is what Ottawa, they saw it last night when Timmy Stutzler was their best player. When your best players are, and it's such a cliche, but when, you're, when your goaltender plays all world, your defenseman play and your number one D and your number one center play up to their capability, it makes life a lot easier. And that's what you're getting, right? Is that you're just seeing that out of the, uh, the Canucks is that like, like right now, and I know I see the narratives of they're going to regress and the underlying numbers aren't great, whatever, like maybe they will regress and sure. But, but I think at the very least they've opened up everybody's eyes in this half of the country to realize, okay, like maybe not a Stanley Cup contender, but legitimate playoff team. And I don't think we thought that, you know, four or six weeks ago. Nope. Ian, appreciate the time. I, got, I just looked up uh, the Matthew McNair Secondary School Wikipedia, and uh, I noticed you're not included on the notable what? alumni. You're not in the what notable alumni section. Glaring omission. Who's on there? Is Bobby Singh? Or, uh, like, no, actually, he was a Richmond High guy. Who's on there? Uh, Evan Dunphy. Uh, Bindi Joe Evan Dunphy is the race walker. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. Okay, Bindi <laughs> Johal, who was uh, apparently uh, a gangster, is what he's, his Wikipedia oh, article geez. says. Yeah. And then a couple of uh, a couple of uh, Canadian uh, men's soccer team players okay. uh, who Hang made on. it as well. Where's my guy that I used to listen to every day going to bed as a kid? Where's Dan Russell? He's not he's, on there. Come on. Like I can understand me not being on there. Whatever. But how do you not have him on there? He was. He was 100% a McNair guy. All right. We need a media wing on the uh, the McNair Secondary School Notable Alumni section on Wikipedia. Jeez, let's so go. Someone, let's get out, go. someone get on that. Uh, Ian, always a blast to have you on. Thanks for doing this. We'll talk soon. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Have a great day, guys. That is Ian Mendez, senior writer for The, the Athletic. The best. Based in Ottawa. Yeah, always great. Always great. Uh, and I love the indignity, the indignation. I, I know, I know. <laughs> he showed it being lumped in with the Eastern media. <laughs> The dastardly Eastern media. Uh, look, look, I, I literally I literally live in Vancouver, grew up in Vancouver, work in Vancouver, and because I lived in Toronto for eight years, people consider me like an Eastern media transplant. So yeah. I'm sorry, Ian. It is what it is. <laughs> uh, great insight on the Senators. And uh, I did want to touch on one of the things. We'll get into it in the next segment. One of the things he mentioned there, which was Jacob Chikrin up over 30 minutes in that win against Toronto last night. Uh, we'll continue to look ahead to the Canucks and the Senators tonight in our next segment. Keep texting in as well, 650-650. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here live from the Kintech studio. Drancer's on the road, of course, in Canada covering the Canucks road trip. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Calm. Canucks and the Senators tonight. Uh, Canucks minus 125 favorites on the road. So not necessarily huge favorites by any stretch, but uh, clear favorites tonight against Ottawa. And there's there's a couple things going into that. Obviously, the Canucks are playing really well right now. They've won a bunch of games. And then, you know, we've talked so much about the fact that all of their opponents in this three-game road trip are going to be playing the second half of a back-to-back. Of course, Ottawa played Toronto last night. And it's one thing to know that. And, okay, okay, you know, the other team's going to be a little more tired. But I think you also look at the specifics of this Ottawa game and how they played last night, and you really start to get a sense of how it could advantage the Canucks. I mean, first and foremost, you're getting the backup goalie, Anton Forsberg, with an 863 save percentage so far this year. And I think the other thing that really caught my eye, and Ian Mendez brought it up, right, was Jacob Chikrin played 31 minutes last night, and 28 of those were even strength. Like, this wasn't one of those games where, you know, you had six power plays, so your PP1 quarterback gets a hugely inflated time on ice. Like, he played 28 five-on-five hard minutes in that game. And you look at the shallowness uh, of the blue line right now for Ottawa, and that stands out as something that could be really hard for the Senators to manage on the second half of a back-to-back here. Yeah, that's the rub for the Senators. It it, it was one of the reasons I had a fade on them going into the year. Um, You know, and and then it's been exacerbated by, by a wash of injuries that they've sustained um, so, yeah, I mean, Chickren's going to have to carry the load. Now, one thing that I'm sort of curious to see here, Jamie, 
is I, I do think at this point we can describe, observe, fairly state that this Canucks team has looked one way at home and a little bit different on the road. Right? Sure. Now, I, I do think the San Jose Sharks 10-1 win <laughs> serves to maybe obscure that in our mind. But, you know, you think about their home slate to this point, and you think about the 8-1 win over Edmonton, still, still maybe their most impressive complete performance of the year, to be totally honest, which is not – um, in any way to denigrate what they've done since so much as that was such an excellent performance like through and through um, and then the, the win over the Blues was a, a fabulous effort the mm -hmm. Rangers game I mean I didn't love it but um, you know certainly on the second leg of a back-to-back -back, they were full value uh, and, and very easily could have come away from that game with two points the Predators win 5-2 is the only win that I'd side eye at all as sort of a lackadaisical performance, and then that 2 nothing and 6-2 victory over the Edmonton Oilers since this weekend. I mean, what, one game you don't love? Maybe one and a half, depending on your mileage for the Rangers game, but for the most part, those have been just phenomenal efforts, um, total efforts. You know, club's defenses look good. They've controlled play for the most part. I mean, their home is, like, really formidable. Yeah, on and the, road. the highs have been really high at home, too, right? Like, there's yeah. been a baseline, and the highs have been, like, off the charts, right? Starting with that 8-1 performance and then, you know, the 5-0 against St. Louis. Like, when it's clicked at home, it has really, really clicked. Really clicked. Now, on the road, it's a little bit of a different story, right? Like, mm -hmm. you, get that, you get that Flyers game, easily their worst effort of the year. You get that Lightning game in which they're outshot 20-6 to in, in the crucial 10 minutes as the Lightning rest that game away from them. Um, you get that Panthers win, which, you know, they won, they regrouped, but man, did they ever hit a flat for about 20 crucial minutes as the Panthers battled their way into back to tie that game up 3-3. Um, and then you get that Predators game and that Sharks game, and those two efforts were fabulous. Now, I suppose it's fair to suggest, like, well, they've trended in the right direction on the road. You know, it was really those first three efforts, the one in Edmonton, the one in Philadelphia, and the one in Tampa Bay that we didn't like. And, and I mean, sure, but that's arbitrary endpoints when the sample's too small to really justifiably do that. Um, you know, when you go through an 82-game season, it's a long season, and there's always things you haven't done yet, right? I mean, this team, until the last 12 games, hadn't gone off, gotten off to a good start, you know, yep. uh, since 2019. Like, can they do it with this core? Well, they've answered that. Resounding, yes. And now I do think it's fair to sort of put up another one, which is... Can this team recreate the consistency of performance that we've seen from them at home on the road in three games, two of which they'll for sure be favored in, um, you know, on, on this current road trip? And, and to me, this also dovetails with the discussion we've been having about Vancouver's self-match, about the way that Miller, Hughes, Hironic, DiGiuseppe, and Besser are being deployed against Tufts as a five-man unit. Uh, about the way that Rick Tockett has, has used Pedersen to perhaps uh, insulate or hide one of the still remaining, um, I don't want to say Achilles heel because it's not that dramatic, right? Like this team succeeded in spite of it, but the, the, the player personnel flaw, hole, whatever you want to say that still exists on this roster, which which is sort of the defensive depth behind Hughes and Hironic, Um you know, it's going to be a little bit tougher just at the margins, but this is a game of, of thin margins for Tockett to create the sorts of favorable environments that him, Adam Foote, the Canucks coaching staff 
have been very disciplined about creating to this point in the season and which has paid major dividends for the Canucks in terms of their ability to overwhelm opponents, frankly, uh, on the scoreboard through 12 games. So uh, just a thing to watch. Um, you know, I, I don't want to – I'm not a doomsayer here so much as I, I want to see this team recreate the, the same consistency of work rate and, and results and process that we've seen at home and do it consistently on this road trip. Well, and I think this ties into the conversation we were having in the first segment before Ian Mendez joined us about, you know, raising the standards for what we can reasonably expect or should be hoping to see from this team. Because I think you're right about the discrepancy between the road performances and the home performances so far. And that comes with two... I don't want to, or if caveat is the right word, but like one caveat is the home performances have been out of this world when you look at them on total, right? Like just like an incredibly, incredibly high standard. I, I think it's important to note that also, obviously, teams do better at home, right? Now, that's not to say that the Canucks can't come close to matching that standard on the road. I think what it is, is it's the mark of a really, really good team if you're also able to consistently have your best effort on the road, right? So I think what we're looking for here is it's not unreasonable. It's hard to do. It's a challenge, right, to consistently have that type of effort and grind out those wins on the road just like you do at home. But it's also the mark of a team that, you know, instead of being the 15th or 16th best team in the league, could be the 7th or 8th best team in the league, right? If that's where you're trying to go, one of the things that is going to help you get there is being able to match that effort on the road. So I think it's part of, okay, we've seen a lot from this Canucks team. What are those next steps? What are those next kind of boxes to check as they try to establish where they are in the NHL hierarchy? I think the road consistency, it's absolutely fair to, to point to those as, as one of those boxes. Yeah, and, and one thing I'd add, too, is if you go look at, for example, previous eras of Vancouver Canucks hockey where, uh, you know, uh, sort of the rise of, an, uh, of a high-end core, the, the proper arrival mm -hmm. of a high-end core, um, you know, maybe preceding the construction of a real contending team has sort of come about, you know, you, you, you'll get to, like, the 08-09 Vancouver Canucks season, which was sort of like the first 100-point season uh, where the team was, like, scoring again um, of the Mike Gillis era, right? Like, really beginning to build toward uh, what we ended up seeing a few years later in 2010-11. In and, you know, one thing that lagged, like a lagging indicator um, for those teams was the home road splits, right? Where it was, like, 24-12-5 at home, 21-15-5 yeah. on the road, right? Like... It, this has been a challenge or, or it, look, it just is a challenge when you are the Vancouver Canucks the next year. Oh, nine, 10 Henrik Sedin wins the heart trophy, right? Teams beginning to be taken seriously as a contender 38 and three at home, 19, 20 and two on the road, right? Like it's hard to win on the road when you're based out in Western Canada. Like it just is, it's really hard, especially when you've got the extra hour and a half ticked on your flight. Uh, versus what the um, what the, uh, Alberta, the Alberta teams, teams do. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this is a challenge. And, you know, if they come out a little flat tonight, if they don't quite start the game on time, like, just keep that in the back of your mind. I'm not making excuses. I'm not predicting doom so much as it's context that I'm going to be looking for when the game begins tonight is, 
you know, where's this team at in terms of meeting the challenge on the road? Because while the results have kind of been there, I don't know that the process really has been through their first, whatever, six road games of the season. Yeah, and if I'm doing my math correctly, I believe they're plus 20 at home through six games, which is a hilarious number in and of its own right. Hilarious. Uh, and and they're plus 10, I believe, on the road, which, of course, nine of them Nine of them coming from San one Jose, game. Is in San Jose. Right. So there's a clear discrepancy there. Just to, And again, because the highs have been so incredibly high. Now, I will say... If you look at a team kind of going from where the Canucks have been to what they are right now, like if you finish with a really good goal differential at home and break even on the road, that's not a bad place to be, right? That's not like no, that's inherently fine. flawed. It's it's maybe not a contender status, <laughs> but that's a pretty good no, place no, to be but, in the NHL. But that 0-9-10 team had 100 points and 49 wins. I mean, you're a 49-win team. You're if If not in the inner circle of contenders, you're close. So, you know, this isn't any commentary on the Canucks quality so much as just like historically, as we've seen winning teams begin to rise in the Vancouver market. One of the things that comes last, one of the final signs that they've arrived tends to be road performance. And it's that context that, you know, I'm going to be focused on at least a little bit tonight. Uh, No, no lineup changes, by the way, no lineup changes. Mm -hmm. So the Teddy Bluger, who comes out for Bluger discussion gets sort of kicked to the weekend, um, which also does, I think, put some spotlight on some of the candidates to come out. Well, 100% right? Whether it's it Beauvillier, does. Hoaglander. You yeah. know, I, I do think that's an interesting one, too. Because there's a, there, we had the conversation yesterday about how difficult the decision is right now, and I, I think that's absolutely fair. It's possible that the decision becomes a lot easier after tonight's game, right? Like, depending right. on what happens in tonight's game, there could be a very obvious logical candidate, and surely the players in that bottom six are well aware uh, of the fact that Teddy Bluger's return to the lineup is looming and sounds like it's going to be uh, on, on the weekend here. I did want to just uh, read this one from uh, or unsigned text who says uh, is it also meaningful that until the Tampa game they did not have their current defense core remember Juleson was playing in Philly and Edmonton Hirose played in Edmonton and then you had Susie and Friedman uh, joining the lineup along the way and like ultimately that's two defenders out of you know the 18 skaters on the team but I did think that was an interesting point especially considering how much Juleson and Hirose, and Hirose su- struggled, struggled when they were in the lineup, right? The fact that you have then since changed that to Friedman, who's played very well, although thought he struggled, you know, he thought he struggled on uh, uh, on Monday against the Oilers and Susie as well. And that's why, you know, Chris and Duncan texted in, I'm having a weird or sickening feeling in my stomach that this Ottawa game could be much like the previous Flyers game. Am I nuts? And in addition to the lineup changes, like I don't need their road performances to be like their home performances where like every home game almost has been this like new, incredible viewing experience where something just transcendently fun is happening. It's not going to be like that on the road, but I think pointing to that Philly game, just you got to avoid those games, avoid those games and put in those business-like professional efforts. So I get where Chris is coming from. I wouldn't bet on seeing a game like that in Philly. But I think that's a useful kind of standard to have in mind. Like, don't don't let it completely collapse like that. Preserve that work ethic. Preserve that compete. That battle. All of those things that you've shown at home. Yeah, I mean, it's still so early in the season. We're still getting a sense of who this team is. I, you know, you definitely don't want to have more flat performances. You know, no. the the thing I the thing I want to not I definitely don't want to see is like the road period where they 
the other team just absolutely tilts the ice against them. Mm-hmm. You know, the the 17 shots for three uh, or sorry, three shots for 17 against period. The 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 stretches we saw on the road on the Canucks last trip in in almost all of the games except the Nashville one where, you know, the other team boot stomped them for like a significant portion of time. That that that's what this team has to avoid. Um and you know, I, I mean, it's an interesting point about Hirose Juleson, but uh, you know, I, I don't think that's sufficient to explain the reversal of fortunes, frankly. Right? No, like, it's I, not. I really you, don't. You can't point to – it's a factor for sure, and I'm totally willing to hear yeah. it as a factor, but you can't say like, oh, well, that's – and therefore you can't – you know, you don't have to be concerned or you don't have to wonder about the road performance at all, right? It's or the comparison's invalid, yeah. you know, because you've made some marginal changes. And, and not not that Susie coming in for Juleson slash Hirose is, is marginal. It's more than that, but – um, you know, nonetheless, we're not talking about them playing without Pedersen, right? We're not talking yeah. about them. We're not talking about something like that um, where you'd really understand it a, a little bit more. So, yeah, no, I, the, the, those, are, those are the things I'm looking for, like the, the road performance, the, the, how replicable this team's home form might be uh, when, when they're out on the road and don't have last change, uh, especially because I do think the matchup game has been such a crucial part of Vancouver's success in the early going. And, and stripped of that power to some extent on the road, I, I'm just curious to see how the group can respond and how the coaching staff can devise ways of of still creating, you know, as favorable an environment as possible. And then the Beauvillier Hoaglander thing, man. Like, I really am struggling with this one because I just see no way. Like, how can you take Beauvillier out of the lineup when he's the guy who, when you're leading, goes higher up the lineup? Like, yeah. to me, to me, if he's, you know, uh, Sure, he takes line rushes on the fourth line, but he's like 30% a top line forward, right? Like 30% of the time when this team's situationally leading, which is a high leverage game state, right? He He's he's pinch hitting on that top line. Like how can you take a guy filling a role like that out of the lineup, even if Niels Hoaglander's overall development and the merit of his performance and the way that he's come on, you know, should by no means have him you know, considered to be a healthy scratch here. It's it's um it's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. It is. It's a difficult one to to wrap your head around. Is there any chance it's Sam Lafferty? I'm not saying it should be, but just as we talk about all of the reasons why it wouldn't be someone else, right? And kind of the bottom six name that we haven't really brought up in this conversation, but he's playing center on that fourth line, right? That's kind of Teddy Bluger's spot. Look, Sam Lafferty's been really good. Right. I'm not this is absolutely not me saying, like, get Sam Lafferty out of the lineup. It's just there's extenuating circumstances with almost every other name. I, I, look, maybe they like what he brings in terms of the the size and speed combo and the tenacity too much and the partnership with Hoaglander. But I'm just trying to think of other solutions to the eventual problem here that don't involve either Beauvillier or Hoaglander. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't think that's a real consideration, not just because he's played well, but because situationally. Right, he he has an important attribute that no one else on this team does. Namely, he's a centerman yeah. who's right-handed. Right, like now he hasn't taken a ton of draws. He's only taken 103 draws. He's actually struggled in the circle, 33% win rate. Right, not not exactly crushing it uh, in the circle to this point. But nonetheless, you know the ability to throw him and Bluger out there, for example. Right, and if one of them gets booted. Um, or the ability to always have a defensive zone centerman, for example, taking a, a draw on their strong side, no matter what happens. I mean, that's a that's a, a luxury 
that I guarantee you that this coaching staff is uh, attuned to, cares about, values. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I don't I don't think that's um, – like, I, I like the thought, but I don't think that's a real – or I don't think that's likely to be a real consideration. No, and again, there's good reasons why it wouldn't be. I just you, you just look through and you're like, okay, it has to be somebody, and it's it's hard to come up with candidates right now. Just by the way, on the point about uh, Anthony Beauvillier and his ice time, he's actually played more five on five minutes than Andre Kuzmenko, for example, so far oh, I this know. year. Right? So you know, it, yeah, fourth liner, but as you said, they're still finding ways. He's only like a minute behind Elias Pettersson in terms of five on five minutes yeah. right now. Well. And he's not a fourth liner. I mean, th- the fact of the matter is that he's not a fourth liner, right? There's a difference between uh, taking a shift on the, you know, taking line rushes on the fourth line and, and being a fourth liner. And, and really, we should gravitate to ice time in, in terms of how we adjudicate, you know, what, what a guy's role is in a lineup. Um, that's a far more telling way to grasp their actual usage. Like, Anthony Beauvillier is a solid third liner. Um, on this team, like he's have he's got middle six deployment. He he's not really a fourth liner. Uh, Nils Hoaglander's playing under ten minutes a game, five on five. He actually is. Mm. Um, you know, and and so then you get to the other guys playing fourth line ice time, and it's Dakota Joshua. They need him in for size, right? He he pl- he plays on special teams, and it's Andre Kuzmenko, and they need him in for the power play. He's you know, a, a, a weapon you absolutely need if you have to chase the game at any point. And at some point this season, surely, yeah. the Canucks will have to chase a game. Do you think um, Do you think they'll ever be in behind at some point? I think they might be, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows at this point? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's not like I've had great feel, Jamie. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, no, I, you know, I, to me, to me, when it's three fourth liners, you know, who you'd consider – one of them's Kuzmenko, who's like a star producer, plays on the power play. The other's, you know, a, a totally unique profile, physical player, physical presence for the team, and plays on special teams uh, on the PK. And, I mean, it's always going to be the other guy who comes out, uh, which is why, you know, the, the Hoaglander storyline, uh, Hoaglander's performance, um, you know, is, is going to bear close monitoring, attentive monitoring, uh, in the game tonight. Yeah, it's just it, it's uh, look, these are good team problems, right? But it's uh, it's still going to be a really difficult one to solve. And somebody texted in. You mentioned it. You touched on it briefly there. Somebody texted in. Why aren't we talking about taking Dakota Joshua uh, out of the lineup? And again, I think they just want that size element. They want they want the best version of Dakota Joshua in the lineup. And even if they don't think they've seen it consistently, I think he has enough runway to like they still want to give him the chance to be the best version of Dakota Joshua consistently. Also, like, he's different, right? Like, mm. Su- Suter, Beauvillier, Hoaglander, Lafferty, right? You're talking about, like, fast. Uh, you know, I- I'm not saying this is an insult. I'm saying, like, I'm going to say non-physical, but what I mean there is not plus physical value, right? Like, you know, Lafferty Lafferty's a big guy, but, um, you know, there's a difference between – Dakota Joshua hitting you and Sam Lafferty hitting you, right? Like there, there just is. So, um, you know, those, those are useful players. Those are players that help this team play to the speed identity that they've been able to develop, um, that are reliable in terms of their two-way play on and on, but they're similar profiles to, to Suter, Beauvillier, Lafferty, uh, Hoaglander, right? Like not, not glitzy scoring, but they can chip in, um, you know, hardworking, high work rate, but not necessarily with bringing that physical edge. 
Um, Dakota Joshua, there's no one else like him. There's no one else that profiles like him. And I guarantee you, uh, we, we know, because Tockett's explicitly said so. Like, that's something they care about and wait. So yeah. when you have four players that profile similarly and one player that sort of stands out, does a distinct job, um, you know, don't focus on the one. Focus on the four. That's just you know, basic hockey logic. They won't have to make the decision tonight. No Teddy Bluger tonight for the Canucks when they take on the Ottawa Senators at 4 o'clock. Well, we'll see how that unfolds going in to the weekend games. Up next, uh, one of our favorites here on the show, former Canucks forward Antoine Roussel. Uh, we'll ask him about Quinn Hughes, some of the other things going on. Uh, we saw JT Miller get under the skin of Connor McDavid. I, you know, Antoine Roussel did that a few times. Not to McDavid necessarily, specifically, but to some really good players he got under their skins. So we'll chat to him about that as well. That's all coming up here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People Show with Big Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance on a Canucks game day. <laughs> Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the work site. Find them together online at DLEAMC.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit. At Kintech.net, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. You can get uh, your thoughts in here. And uh, we will be joined by Antoine Roussel, uh, former Canucks forward here at some point in this segment. Uh, do we have Antoine on the line? No, not quite yet. We are we are efforting to get Antoine uh, on the line here, but he will join us uh, at, some, at some point in this segment. And uh, lots to get into, as always, with Antoine Roussel, Drancer, uh, I did, you know, sub we were we were having the conversation about who comes out when Bluger comes back in, and somebody simply texted it in. Seems like we need to trade a winger. LOL. Yeah, it's it seemed like that for a while. The Canucks have a bit of a roster logjam at that spot, and yeah, as much as it is a good problem to have, you can also think about the ways that if a winger was to be moved, maybe the cap uh, the cap space could be put to a different purpose at some point too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've known this for a long time, right? It's not new that the Canucks nope. um, are a little overloaded in terms of uh, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of the depth that they have on the wings versus what they've got in an awful lot of other positions. Uh, 650-650, again, is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. Uh, just a note before we get Antoine Roussel on the line as we uh, monitor what's going on around the league. Uh, the LA Kings, with a big... Big win over the Vegas Golden Knights, 4-1. So that's uh, two of the top three teams in the Pacific Division, with the other one, of course, being the Canucks right now going at it. L.A. comes out on top. So one interesting thing about that is uh, the Canucks are four points behind Vegas with two games in hand. So you win a couple of those games, and all of a sudden you're right there with the, uh, with the Golden Knights for the Pacific Division lead. The other thing is, for as much as we've talked about the Canucks hot start, 19 points in 12 games. L.A. 
basically keeping pace perfectly with them, 18 points through their first 12 games. Uh, and it was, we talked about, you know, doing it on, on, on home ice versus the road. 7-0-0 on the road for L.A. so far this season, Drats. Uh, pretty amazing. And, I mean, Cam Talbot, you know, they invested literally nothing in that. And Cam Talbot was sensational last night. Like, really, really good. Um, also sensational, I got to watch uh, late night hockey on the East Coast, which uh, I quite enjoyed. <laughs> uh, we're having some difficulty uh, reaching uh, reaching Antoine Roussel here, but uh, we will get him off at uh, get him off. We will get him on the show at some point here. Oh boy, we will get him on the show here uh, at some point, and uh, we'll, 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 well, do our best. well, maybe not anymore. <laughs> oh boy, oh boy. Uh, whether it's this segment at next, we will get him on the show at some point because uh, yeah, always a pleasure to chat with Antoine Roussel. But yeah, that LA situation really bears monitoring. I know you were very high on them uh, coming into the season. And as you said, invested basically nothing in their goaltending position. They're getting good performances from Cam Talbot right there. And the rest of the lineup really looks uh, like it's clicking. <laughs> and, you know, again, they don't, what? No, they're the, they're, the, they're the team in your fantasy league that drafted Raheem Mostert. <laughs> like, that's who they are. Approach. 100%, so zero goalie. And... You know, I mean, one thing that's happened for L.A. that was the, the main reason, frankly, that I was high on them is, you know, that offense is playing, right? Like, they're, they're scoring at a level they just haven't. They're, they're so much more dangerous, sort of sustaining um, dangerous offensive attacks than they have been in recent years. And, man, is uh, I mean, I think that team's – look, that team and Vegas, like, there's going to be a lot of competition. It's going to be a really interesting uh, stretch run in the Pacific this year. Yeah, I'm really excited. They play Vegas at the end of the month, uh, November 30th for the first time. That's going to be fun. And then, yeah, they don't play L.A. until much later in the season. So, look, we'll see what these teams even look like at that point. You know, injuries, additions, all those things can can become a factor. But uh, it's definitely, you know, one of the many, many benefits of – watching and covering a team that's doing well is you get to start getting excited about those kind of big divisional matchups and seeing how you stack up with the other top teams in your division. And the, that Vegas LA one was a really interesting one. And I'm excited to see uh, the Canucks when they get a chance to start uh, to start to start matching up with some of those teams as well. Um, do we want to uh, while we wait to get Antoine Roussel on the line here, do we want to talk about uh, about the 2017 NHL entry draft? Thomas Trance, do we want to, do we want to get into that right now? Yeah, no, I, I don't. Oppo- I'm not opposed to discussing it um, at all. To be clear, I, I'm. I know I made a joke about it earlier, but you know, no. Well, I mean, look, I do want to say it's, it's hilarious. We can get into the nuts and bolts of it, right? Because I do think there's a lot of interesting things going on there. I can't escape the sense that like. Canucks Twitter and Canucks fans and Canucks media. This is we're, we're like keeping our knives sharp for when something goes wrong with the actual season. You know, <laughs> it's like there was nothing. There was nothing going wrong with this team right now. But we got to stay in shape. We got to be at the top of our games for when there's something to argue about. So we're gonna go back to 2017 and we're gonna argue uh, about that instead, just to make sure we're ready. We got to stay ready. It's a smart move, really. I think, Drancer. Uh, yeah, I mean, no, this is an unusual thing, though. Like that's, uh, you know, I. I I, like I know you're kidding, but I'm I'm reluctant to accept at face value that like other another market wouldn't be, you know, fascinated, riveted by uh, effectively conflicting accounts from 
key leaders in a former era um, being surfaced explicitly, yeah. right? I, I, you know, a, a lot of this is stuff I've reported, right? And like, nothing has come out that has fundamentally changed the equation for me. My understanding that I've always had about, or certainly since May of 2020, about sort of what happened here, which is there are conflicting accounts within the organization about how exactly how the club decided to uh, draft Elias Pettersson. There, there are some key points that everyone agrees on. Those key points are as follows, right? The, the, um, the, the process shifted and became more collaborative after 2016. Uh, Jim Benning at one point did... Uh, advocate that Cody Glass was too low on the list mm -hmm. and, and suggested that the club take a second look. And I think that's what he was getting at uh, when he talked to Raja yesterday uh, and discussed, um, you know, like the idea of getting more viewings and doing additional due diligence, right? Like that that's normal for the most part. Um, Cody Glass was never higher on the list than Elias Pettersson. And a lot of people involved do believe that if Lyndon hadn't, you know, been so committed to the process, uh, the new process that he wanted to implement, one in which, um, you know, certainly the scouting director and, and the scouting staff, the amateur scouting staff as a whole had, had a louder voice than they had the year prior, um, that the that Pedersen might not have been the pick. Uh, I don't think anything we've heard from either Benning or Linden discussing this changes what should be our understanding of this. Like, those are, those are the facts we know. And then... You know, everything else is, um, you know, a matter of opinion. I, I guess it just changes it for people when they hear the principles sort of confirm those sure. details specifically, right? And that makes sense. That, that you know, I, I totally understand that. But, you know, I, I don't know that this is new, right? Like, I don't know that this is new. And, and I think more than anything, you know, perhaps it's a mark, too, of, of just how prone to dysfunction the last era of Canucks hockey was mm. right. I, I mean, for me, it's more than anything. It's a window into that, um, you know, and, and there's a, there's a variety of other things we can discuss. I think, you know, the, the slamming Benning over this to me misses the point a little bit though, in that, you know, regardless of whether he was a helpful part of the process or not, regardless of who you want to blame, um, you know, the club selected some really good players um, over the course of his time as general manager, and in particular selected 12 guys who played NHL games, including two bona fide superstars in the sort of four years that Judd Brackett worked as his um, director of, of amateur scouting. And if you want to isolate it just to the two years where Brackett was the head of uh, amateur scouting, Benning was the GM, and Linden was still president – like you, you come out of those drafts with Pedersen and Hughes and then a bunch of other guys who play NHL games, um, you know, players like, uh, you know, Cole Lind, who still may end up being, you know, having a career down the line here. Jonah Gadjevich, who's still kicking around in pro hockey, uh, Jack Rathbone, um, you know, Jet Wu, who's still got a shot like. That's that's good by any measure, by any measure. If you come out of those two drafts with Hughes and Pedersen plus other stuff like that's a success. You know, it doesn't matter who gets the credit or the blame. You're all part of the process. And that to me, that to me is how we should remember it, um, regardless of sort of the salacious details and, and sort of the, um, you know, inside baseball stories about exactly how it all went down. So I think there's a couple of interesting things about why this has 
why it generated so much interest and so much discussion and, and arguing and all that. I do think there's something to be said for like there isn't and there is I, like there's not much else to argue about right now. I agree with you that it is inherently interesting and there would be a discussion, but I do think it's kind of filling a little bit of a vacuum there. I think another element of this is that since Trevor Linden left the organization in 2018, it's not he, he's like he's done plenty of radio interviews with us, appearances on other in other outlets, right? He's been very present, but always with the kind of understanding that he wasn't going to spill the goods on what happened, right? Like that that wasn't going to be I don't mean understanding when uh, it's being lined up with the media outlet. I mean just I think listeners understand that, right? Like we've heard a lot of Trevor Linden interviews and as much interest and curiosity as there might be about, okay, what exactly went down between him and Jim Benning and him and ownership? What happened in that in that situation? There's never been that kind of salacious tell-all interview, right? For very understandable, for understandable reasons. So I think there was almost a sense of novelty, but this was as far down that road as Trevor Linden has gone since he left the organization. I think that was uh, that that's something that really piqued people's interest when they started to hear it for me the thing that was most interesting I thought was the talk about the process right and how they were changing the process because in and of itself GM prefers player x but defers to scouts who want player y like that's not a story you know what I mean that that's that's oh I think that's a story okay but it's not that doesn't happen in the first round all right, that's fair. In the first round, you're right. That's fair. But I still think there's a way to look yeah, at that. Yeah, that doesn't happen in the first there's round. A, I th- still think there's a way to look at that and say, that's the GM making a good decision. You know what I mean? Like, that's the GM recognizing oh. his his weaknesses and, and leaning on the strengths of the people in the organization and actually having it be a positive for the GM, right? For sure. Well, and there's some GMs who aren't don't have, you know, Jim Benning's amateur scouting background, right? Like, it's, you know, when when your GM is a career scout, though, and does it, I think that's a very. I think that's a story. I think that's fascinating, um, and extremely rare. Like GM's hands are all over first round picks. It's sort of when you get to, especially at the top of a draft. It's sort of when you get to the second, third, fourth, fifth, where where a little more deference tends to occur. Um, and even then, sometimes you'll get a, a GM amending the list and taking a, pay, a player that you know they they like more than consensus. So, um, yeah, I mean, no. Uh, to me, I di- I disagree with that. I think it's. I think it's a major, like within within the industry, it's it's fascinating if a career scout GM, um, you know, ha- has a different belief on who should go first overall or in the first round, um, and the team does something different. I think that's that's fascinating. And, and all of that said, you know, based on conflicting accounts, I wouldn't say we know that that's factually what. Sure. Occurred. I agree with that last part, but I guess what I was trying to say is, to me, if those are the facts, that is not ammunition to attack Jim Benning as a general manager. You know what I mean? To me, that's that's a really interesting way to operate as a general manager, even if it might be the non-standard way and not what traditionally happens. Like, I think you could make an argument that, that maybe it should happen more, but you defer to the people with oh, the yeah. expertise in that category. That's always been my kind of stance on it. Now, the interesting thing from Trevor Linden, which is, was, like, I guess my question was, how grudging a participant was Jim Benning in the new process that Trevor Linden is talking about here, right? Like that that's the 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 question that I have in kind of the opening to if for some reason you're looking for additional reasons to criticize Jim Benning's tenure as general manager, like that's where that becomes an opening for me because if it if the facts are, you know, there was a bad process in 2016, 
that led to some bad results. A good process was instituted in 2017, and then when Trevor Linden left the organization, that good process got rolled back. Like, that's a much more damning set of facts than Jim Benning preferred Cody Glass over Elias Patterson. You know what I mean? Well, I, I, you know, here, like, just the fact pattern, though, Jamie, right, is – it only lasted for a year and a half. Yeah. So clearly it wasn't, <laughs> clearly it wasn't, you know, something that, um, that like caused zero friction, right? Like, yeah. I mean, L Lyndon today was talking about them having different, vi differing visions for the future of the franchise on, on Donnie and Dolly. And it's like, yeah, that makes sense. Given that, you know, from the 2017 draft through to Trevor Lyndon's departure, it's like 14 months. Like, 14 months later, one of them was gone from the organization. I think that's a pretty good hint um, that, that you know, the new approach caused some friction. And and here's where I think, you know, the, the more interesting discussion happens, for me anyway, is we all talk about Yolevi and then the Pedersen thing in 2017 becomes a flashpoint. But I, I don't think it was isolated to the amateur draft process, right? Like... Um, you look at what happened in 2016, right? The Canucks made the playoffs 14, 15 mm -hmm. and got rid of sort of the last remnants, uh, like Gillis's key lieutenants after the 2015 draft in Florida, uh, where the club selects Brock Besser. So that's like Lawrence Gilman, Lauren Henning, Eric Crawford, right? And the next season things go badly. Like the team is bad. The team does poorly. They take a big step back. And, you know, that next season, 2016, like that summer, that's where you get Eric Goodbranson for Jared McCann, right? And yep. that's where you get the Louis Erickson signing, right? And so as the team's results don't turn around in 16-17, like I don't think it's just the amateur draft process that was tweaked um, that became more collaborative, where, where Lyndon got a little more involved in protecting the process, um, you know, I, I think it was almost across the board. It was, you know, how involved were our pro scouts in the Good Branson deal? How involved were our pro scouts in the Erickson deal? Who papered the deal? Like, how do we move on um, and make better decisions as a group? Um, and, you know, I, I do think there was a variety of people. Like, Brackett was sort of the flashpoint for discussion, like the opening uh, where, where this became more widely discussed in the market. But, you know, I like... Ryan Johnson yeah. took on a bigger role at that time. Um, Jonathan Wall took on a bigger role at that time. Like there was, there was a variety of different people uh, empowered, and that's not to say that Jim Benning was, um, you know, neutered necessarily. So much as, uh, you know, there there was an insistence that the club figure out a, a way of doing things that that went beyond, you know, a, a smaller group of decision makers. And you know, I, I think that's sort of where. The, the, the Linden story becomes almost tragic in that, you know, I, I don't think when he was hired for president uh, of hockey operations back in, what, 2014, like, I don't know that he was ready for it. And, and I think the club made a, a bunch of errors. Um, you know, the Willie Desjardins hire, I, I don't know that that was a good one. The Jim Benning hire, uh, you know, I don't know if that was a good one. Um, I don't know. I'm being polite, right? Like, it didn't work out. Neither <laughs> I think worked I, out. I think I know. I know neither worked out. Right. Um, and, you know, having made a bunch of mistakes, but the Benino trade and, and on and on good Branson, Erickson, the Olevi pick, um, the Vertanen pick, I mean, go down the list. 
I, you know, I, I sort of look at what happens in and around 2017 and 2018 um, as sort of like a different era, like an almost a different mini era toward the latter stages of Lyndon's presidency, where at least in some areas um, of hockey operations, it looked like the club was beginning to move in a more insightful, interesting direction. And, you know, then, then Lyndon was gone. And, and I don't know if he ever got the space to, like, learn from his mistakes and, and, and sort of graft, you know, being, like, a, a ready executive, like an executive at the top of his game with his unique, you know, authority and credibility and communications ability uh, in the Vancouver market. Um, and, and sort of, like, it's like he didn't, he didn't get a shot to implement what he'd learned is, is sort of how it feels like to me. Uh, based on what I know and based on what the fact pattern tells us. And, you know, that to me is just a what if. Like, it's just a what if. I don't know if Lyndon 2.0 would have been, more, been you know, hugely successful. I don't know if, like, he rebounds from the, the Benning Desjardins hires the way that Sackick, for example, did in Colorado with the Patrick Waugh hire. But um, I certainly wonder about it. I certainly wonder how different Canucks history would look if the organization had gone in a different direction in the summer of 2018 when it clearly became untenable uh, between Linden and the organization. To your point about the differences from 2016 to 2017 and specifically the 2016 draft and then the, the moves and the free agency leading to a different process – it was at the 2016 trade deadline, I believe, right, that they didn't trade an expiring Dan Hamhuis. They weren't able to move him at the That's deadline. Right. And then you go to the 2017 deadline and they move – And redeem Verbata. And, and redeem Verbata. And they move both Yannick Hansen and Alex Burrows. And if you – I, I right. guess you would have been in Florida at the time. But, like, the reaction to successfully trading UFAs – at the trade deadline for prospects oh. was like rapturous, right? And I just I was I was still following along. Yeah, I'm sure worry. you were, of course. You know, it was absolutely rapturous at the time, and I think it's just another interesting data point to what you're building, right? That okay, maybe the process was changing and pointing in, uh, you know, just a. a a smarter direction overall. And I do think when I look back at, you know, the split from Trevor Linden and then Jim Benning taking over and what transpired after that, I do think it's easy to look at Trevor Linden with kind of rose colored glasses for obvious reasons, right? Because of his career as a Canuck his you know, he, he's iconic for so many reasons. He's a fantastic communicator, but you know, as you said, there were blemishes on his record as well. The fascinating thing to me is not, it's not a simple dichotomy between, Oh, he wanted to rebuild and, and Benning wanted to go for it. There's probably some truth to that. But the more interesting thing to me is the fact that Trevor Linden wasn't just thinking about it or seems to be that he wasn't just thinking about it in those terms. He was thinking about it in the real process terms. Right. And as you said, OK, who can we empower in the organization? How can we structure things to make sure that we're making smarter decisions rather than just I disagree with that decision? And I think that speaks really highly to the potential he could have had as an executive like that, like that remains the most interesting thing to me is hearing his thoughts about that collaborative process that he was trying to put, uh, put in place here. Yeah. And you know, it's, I mean, look, there's, there's so many what ifs that you can spill into this whole thing, right? Oh, yeah. Like the fact that the fact that having missed the playoffs once in six years, right. The club fired uh, Mike Gillis and hired a president who, you know, in, in retrospect, I think we can say based on, the first two, three years there, like, wasn't ready, right? Um, that's that's one of the what-ifs. And then, you know, what-if two is, 
um, what if the club fired that president when he became ready or mm. right as he was becoming <laughs> ready, you know, and then um, you, you get the sort of, uh, you know, the carnage of frankly and, and not not exclusively. Right. I mean, the JT Miller trade was a win. And I mean, there's good moves in there. Um, but, you know, the carnage of of what sort of transpired in, in those waning years of the of the Benning era and the year and a half that it's taken the club to untangle that, um, you know, whether whether it's because this management group inherited a coach or I mean, I mean, on and on down the line, like everything that's sort of stemmed from it. And, and now and now it's like you're emerging with this team. And if they can keep this up um, on, on the one hand, it'll show you what sort of value the assembly of this core has brought. And that's positive. But on the other hand, like, did it have to be this painful <laughs> for yeah. like, like, uh, is this, the success of this team to this point, I think, really hammers home like, wow, Besser, Hughes, Pedersen, Miller, like, man, Demko, what an, what an astounding uh, uh, accumulation of talent. And on the other hand, it's like, how many seasons have we wasted when these players were all here? And for the most part, performing at a high level, if not this high level in years past. I mean, both of those thoughts, I think you can have simultaneously. It's a fascinating discussion just on like how you grade executives, because you can see the how overwhelmingly two decisions, right? Let's really drill down. I'm not and I'm not disrespecting Miller, Demko, Besser or anything like that. But really, like how overwhelming Pedersen and Hughes selecting, making those picks what they can do for your franchise, just in and of itself, making those selections, the incredible positive pull it has on your team that can almost not completely outweigh, but do so much to mitigate so many other poor decisions, right? Like that's part of what we're seeing here is that, hey, if you have those guys, you still have a chance to turn things around, even if a lot of other things don't go your way. And it, when you're evaluating an executive, I think it's really difficult to balance, okay, they made those two decisions, which were absolute grand slam home runs. How do we assign credit for those? And how do we weigh that versus the rest of the record? I think that's another one of the reasons why this is always a, a hot button talking point whenever it comes up uh, for Canucks fans, right? Because it's just, uh, it, 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 you, go ahead. I know I just I, and I agree with you and I'm happy to like entertain the discussion but I do think we should remember that it's history now. Oh yeah. You know like I do think especially as this team set to play this three game road trip, you know, uh positioned the way they are with the vibes this good around the team, right? The possibility that this club is has actually maybe leveled up, uh the possibility that some regression will hit and that we'll we'll learn a lot more about them over the next 18 games like, you know, for me to some extent uh, I, I do think we should keep our, our focus on the present, just given how pertinent it is, given how compelling it is, given how for the first time in a long time, we're looking at a Canucks team that has a chance to be at the very least exciting and maybe more than that. Like to me, that needs to be, you know, wh where we where we keep our focus as opposed to precisely how it got built and precisely who gets credit. Yeah. The key thing is Elias Pettersson's here and he's like, is he still leading the league in points since the, the games have happened? I haven't checked today. Oh, as of very I recently, he was leading the league in points. He's, he's near the top. Yeah, regardless of uh, one of the league yeah. leaders in scoring. So there you go. He's well, here. Uh, yeah. And I mean, even then, you know, Pettersson's future to me is way more interesting than how the Canucks came to have him in the first place uh, Nikita right? Kucherov like, has edged ahead of him by the way 22 to 21 yeah. points so there yeah you go. I mean Kucherov is is a monster he's pretty good 
Yeah, so good. Uh, we will take a break. Coming up, uh, we'll look ahead, continue to look ahead to uh, the game between the Canucks and the Senators tonight in Canada, which Drance will be there, of course, for. Uh, continue to take your text as well. Hopefully, Antoine Roussel will join us. We'll see if we can track him down somewhere in Quebec. But uh, keep on listening. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance on a Canucks game day. The Canucks in Canada to take on the Ottawa Senators. Uh, we are here live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. And uh, yeah, we, we we touched. Well, we we spoke at length about the uh, the Benning the uh, Benning Linden thing in the last segment. And there's a handful of people saying, "Hey, come on, move on, focus on the team, stop relitigating the past." And then there's a lot of people relitigating the past, which is the uh, the dichotomy of Canucks fandom right now. But yes, it is a game day. They're going to take on the Senators, part of a three game Eastern Canadian road trip. Uh, before we get back into it, let's hear from Canucks head coach Rick Tockett speaking to the media earlier today in Canada. Rick, what's the key here in terms of getting off to a good start on this road trip? Well, I think like any road game, you know, you want to play, you know, you, the way you want to play early. I don't think you want to wait for the other team. Um, I think every every coach says the same thing. I think it establish our type of game, you know, a fast game, um, you know, n- don't turn the puck over against this team. They, I think they one of the top goal-scoring teams. They got I know they got some injuries, but they got some a lot of talent over there. So you don't want to feed their transition. Have you been happy with the way your team has been able to reset after every game? Uh, I, I think this season, just at certain moments, um, I've seen we've reacted the right way if things aren't going our way. Um, that's what I really like with this team. You know, like uh, there's if there's some bad things that happen early, or even at any parts of the game, we've we've got back to our game. So um, if we can continue that. Um, that's when you can usually be consistent, but that's something we we're, we work on every day. I think you used the term business-like the other day. Yeah. With that in mind, still, with the way the team is going, do you feel or sense a sense of excitement around the guys to kind of show off where they're at in, in these games? Yeah, I mean, that's. I think there's a certain amount of swagger it's great to have. Um, I don't think we should look at the paper every day and look at your record. I'm not a big fan of that. Me personally, I think you come to the rink every day and earn. I know we keep saying earn your you earn your day. I think you, you can't fall in that trap. That's something that, you know, yeah, we should feel good about each other and and I don't want to show off. I just think that we you know we're a good team and it's okay to say we're a good team. I don't think that's being cocky or anything. I think we're a good team. But saying that, I think that you got to respect every opponent. Starter. Uh, Smitty playing tonight. And kind of along those, kind of along oh, those lines, uh, some teams would relax enjoying that many wins, but you guys don't seem to cheat. Well, I just think that, you know, I don't know, maybe guys from past history, I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's the temperament 
all of us, you know. You know, I, we, I feed off the leadership group, they feed off the coaching staff, players feed off everybody. I think it's important that we come in even keel. You know, I think it's important. I, you know, I don't care if it's Rick Tockett or Ian Cole or Adam Foote. It doesn't matter. I think we all have the same temperament, you know, the, and I think it's very important we all do have that same temperament and being even keel. Do you think some of the success sort of inspires the group to work even harder? You're having success, it's great, but they want more of it? Well, I think it's infectious when you see a guy tracking hard, a guy block a shot. Um, you know, we showed a video today, you know, the first 10 minutes, obviously we weren't good against Edmonton, but about three shifts in a row, we started to get our game back. So, you know, I think it was a third and fourth line, did a really good job of getting our game back, whether it was a, you know, a chip to a guy holding on to the puck, making a play to the net uh, or a good change. I think when you show that stuff, it's infectious. Every, everybody wants to be on board when things go well, you know. Rick, is that now? No, 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 Teddy's not in, no, and no. So it's getting, getting close. Yeah. Yeah, very close. No, no lineup changes? Uh, no lineup changes, yeah, other than in that. Yeah. Good. That is Canucks head coach Rick Tockett confirming at the end there, Casey DeSmith gets the start. No other lineup changes as we talked about earlier in the show. Uh, did, did my ears hear correctly? Was that a John Shorthouse cameo in, 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 in question in that scrum? It was, yeah. Wow. It was a John Shorthouse cameo and then also a John Abbott ah. cameo. So, uh, so yeah, we were blessed today. And I gave Rick Tockett the day off. I just was like, at the end, like, no lineup changes? Bluger? Okay, let's go. Funny how Rick Tockett gets the day off from talking to you, but I don't ever. <laughs> What's the deal? <laughs> What's the deal there? They're, they're, they're called weekends, Jay. <laughs> That's true. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. But uh, you know things. No, are, you know things are going well you, when Shorty's coming down from you, scrums. You, you literally have by law two days off a week from talking to me. I don't know what you're talking about. That's true. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not offended personally. I'm offended because it's factually incorrect. I'm also definitely filling on the, filling in on the morning show for three days next week. So I get I get oh, yeah. non weekend days off uh, from talking to you yeah, sometimes, you which is very nice. Um, but, you know, Tockett hitting a lot of the notes that we've come to expect from him there. And it, as we kind of tie what we just heard from uh, from Tockett, <laughs> it, what? Isn't it funny, though, how now the questions are so much, like, more flattering? Oh. And he almost likes them least less. Yeah. No, one of the fascinating <laughs> things about Tockett has been, like, he, you know, he, he used the word even keel there. And you can tell when they're coming off a big win, he is so focused on the even keel thing. Right. Or or yeah. when or when the reporters are throwing like, hey, your guys never cheat and you're playing so well. He is so zeroed in on maintaining the same tone. It's like it reminds me almost of like a poker player who trains themselves to act exactly the same way, whether their hand is awful or fantastic. Right. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah, things are going great, but I'm still going to answer all these questions in the same way. I'm not going to be over the top about it. You, you can really tell that he's focused. He's walking the walk in that respect when he's preaching even keel and, and all of that to his players. For sure. Yeah. It, you know what? It's an interesting way of looking at it. Uh, I hear talk its facility with cards is um, pretty high. <laughs> so, um, you know, not a not a shocking yeah. uh, analogy there. And then uh, but, you know, I, I look, I mean, I think they know like I think they know they've played well. Yep. And I also think they know that there are bumps ahead. There are. Like, of course there it's, are. It's impossible to go through a season like this. You know, if you do, you're the 1995 Detroit Red Wings. I mean, 
you know, it's it, there's going to be rainy days. There's going to be bumps on the road. And and how this team navigates that is going to be telling. It's going to tell us everything. So, you know, I, I think I think they're just aware of that. I mean, Rick's been around this game an awfully long time. He's been on great teams. Um, you know, he, he, he knows how it goes. And, and I think he's sort of putting the don't get too high, don't get too low thing into practice. That scrum was maybe the best example we've seen yet. Because I thought it was the most flattering line of questions, mm. partly because I didn't ask any, um, that he's uh, that he's dealt with. And, you know, one of the things he said there, and I, I do think there's something to, you know, he said, look, we should feel good because we're a good team, right? You, you, it's not that you want to pretend like you haven't had good results. Like, that's not productive either or that you're not playing well. It's just managing to find that balance where you don't get ahead of your skis uh, and you still, you're still you locked in and hungry at the same time. That's really difficult to do, and that's what he's focused on right now. I did think it was interesting as well hearing him say, you know, we've reacted the right way if things aren't going our way. We get back to our game. And, you know, we were having the discussion earlier about, okay, some of the differences from the early season road performances to what we've seen at home, especially in recent games uh, from the Canucks, but also in the home opener, to be fair. And I think as we, you know, lay out the, uh, the roadmap of, okay, we want to see them have more consistent performances on the road as well. One of the keys to that is, you know, in the Philly game, for example, they don't get back to their game. And it ends up being basically a whole game where they're the second best team. You can find examples in these home games where maybe things don't start out exactly how they want, but they are able to rally and they're able to turn it around uh, in game. So talk and highlighting that, I think that's going to be one of the keys on the road because inevitably on the road, especially in a lot of games, but especially on the road, you're going to have, you know, five, maybe 10 minute stretches where you're not loving your game. The key is, can you manage to make that just a five to 10 minute stretch and not let it stretch to half the game or even the whole game like we saw in Philly? Yeah. Or, or make sure that the damage done is minimized, right? Make sure mm. it's, you know, one goal against as opposed to three. Right, like make sure that stretch doesn't kill you the way it killed the Maple Leafs, for example, last night against this Senators team. Um, so yeah, no, it, you know what? It's an interesting way of looking at it because you're right. There's a microcosm of the ebbs and flows within a game, and then 82 <laughs> of those yeah. sort of make up the long ebbs and flows within a season. And you know, I, I mean, I'm, look, the Canucks are going to have a lot of games, not not like a a few games, like a lot of games where they play well and lose. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the, the, we haven't seen them play one of those yet. Um, things, things are not always going to be um, sunny ways for, for this team. And yeah, I, I look, they've got, they've got the right coach to, um, they've got the right coach with the right mindset, it seems, to handle those bumps uh, the the mire and the muck when it comes. Uh, Mike from West Van says, I agree with everything you guys are saying. When they finally reach those bumps and that adversity, that's going to really show us what this team is all about. I'm hoping they don't have to deal with a lot of it, but I hope that they can come out on top because I really enjoy watching the way this team is playing right now. And that was one of the early se season things, you know, before this start really got to ridiculous heights where we're talking about statistically in the camp of, you know, what is it, the 84 Oilers and Quinn Hughes uh, alongside Bobby Orr in these categories and things, but <laughs> them rebounding 
after the Philly game, and it wasn't immediate, right? Tampa was better, but they still lost that game. It wasn't as if they were the better team against Tampa, but them being able to rebound after that Philly letdown game, and really after a couple of poor games, when you look at the Edmonton one in there, and get back to where they were by the time, or where they wanted to be by the time they played Nashville, like that was one of the early things that started to get me interested about what this team could be, and you know, started to kind of have me curious about where they were going. So we have already seen a little bit of that, right? Like, okay, a game went bad. We had uh, one of the low moments in the 82-game season, and they were able to rebound. That's doing it once. They're going to have to do it again at other points in the season as well. But I do think it's worth noting, like, they, it's not as if it's been literally perfect and they haven't faced any adversity. Rick Tockett was pretty upset with them, pretty upfront about it after that game in Philly, and they were able uh, to get their game back on track. Yeah, we've also got a suggestion in that they played well against the Rangers but got refereed. Um, I'm not – I mean, they did get refereed, but I don't think they played that well. So. I think they played <laughs> I think they played well, but it was still a toss-up game. It wasn't like, oh, my yeah. gosh, I can't believe they lost that game. You know what I mean? They did – the refs obviously played a role in it, but the Canucks' performance wasn't – and I think it was better than, than you do. It's just a differing uh, – a, a difference of opinions, but it wasn't so overwhelming that it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they didn't get two points there. Like one point no. is a is a pretty reasonable takeaway from that game. Ultimately, oh, I think one point matches you know, f like one point matches more closely what, in my opinion, they deserved from that performance than you know had they won it outright, for example. So anyway, well, neither here nor there. Like that's small stuff, but yeah, I mean, interesting commentary. I think. Um, that fans are at least, you know, thinking about it in these terms, right? Like, mm. I think there's an there's an understanding, you know, that that like no one wants to hear. I don't think too much about this team's PDO from the perspective of this is all a mirage, right? Um, because I don't think it is, and I think fans can tell. Like, this market's seen good hockey. This market's seen bad hockey. Oh, this yeah. market knows the difference, and this is good hockey. Um, is it fortunate hockey too? Yeah, it has been at times, but it's not, it's not without substance and, and fans know that. I think that's why, you know, the, there's not a lot of patience for the, like, well, their expected goals say, um, and look, maybe, maybe that's just my sense of it because that's how I feel about it. Maybe, maybe <laughs> like maybe no one had any patience for that during the Boudreaux bump either. Um, uh, but at least then I felt the conviction that it needed to be said over and over. <laughs> <laughs> this time, I truly think you're missing the forest for the trees if you can't see all the good things that this team is doing in addition to the favorable results. Yeah, no, it's there's there's so much more that you can buy into, right, than, than you could, I think, even with the, the Boudreaux bump when they're playing so well, right? And Thatcher Demko's been fantastic, yes, and that's a, a similarity that the, the two stretches have. But I, I think a huge part of it, yes, the hockey is legitimately better. It's also happening at the beginning of the season. Right. If, if they totally. if they rattled off this exact stretch in January after falling, you know, 12 points out of the playoff race, I, I it wouldn't be the same type of uh, of glowing reviews for it. Right. Because it matters more when you're doing it with a clean slate coming into the season. I think that's a huge part of what people are recognizing, too. Well, and that was a huge part of the Boudreaux bump thing. Right. Yeah. Where people were getting all excited about their perch in the standings. And yet they never really threatened to actually make the playoffs. You know, no. like they never got 
They never won the game that would have given them a chance to win the next game that would have given them a chance to win the next game to make it. Mm-hmm. They were always they were always pretty far behind the pace car. They were on the cusp you know, a lot, but never got never got really into it. They never got into the race. Uh, they, they never got into the race. They never even got to the starting line. And and that's not on how the team performed under Boudreaux. It was a remarkable pace. It was just, you know, the the power of a slow start, the power of a strong start is is massive in this league. And when you do the strong start thing, man, it earns you a lot of respect as it should, especially from analysts that are as laser focused on like playoff probabilities and forecasting um, as you and I tend to be, or at least me, I guess I won't lump you in with me. But, yeah, no, you know, I mean, look, there's, it's just, I math. think, I think you have appetite for it. The too. smart, no, but the playoff thing is just math. It's like, you don't even have to look at like Dom's models, playoff odds, right? There's all the stats about November 1st and, and American Thanksgiving and all of that, right? Which are more like traditional hockey guy stats, but they all amount to the same thing, which is that if you dig yourself a hole early in the season, you're in incredibly, incredibly tough. Uh, do the math for the, uh, the point pace math, right? That we all got so used to doing for the Canucks over the last couple of seasons now we're doing it in a good way it's not like I don't think you have to have a particular or or, you know unique perspective to recognize that strong start or bad start has a huge role in how your season uh, is going to play out Steve from White Rock says and this was earlier in the show we were talking about Casey DeSmith getting the start tonight which means he'll likely in, in all likelihood play a two or three on this road trip uh, he says, Steve says, if we're going to be giving to Smith a run, it makes sense to do it in the East. Every game is important, but the ones out West are the true must wins, uh, technically worth twice as much. That is an interesting perspective here, right? Like going out East, yes, you want to win every game, especially against the other Canadian teams in the spotlight and all of those things. But as we look ahead to the rest of the month after this road trip and then the game, the the Bo Horvat game on Wednesday, the remainder of the month is all against Western opponents. And I do wonder, you know, even looking at the, the Islanders flames back to back, uh, how that, how the West coast, East coast nature of that, the Western conference, Eastern conference nature of that affects how the, the team might choose to play Thatcher Demko or Casey DeSmith in those games. Hmm. Mm, yeah. Because one interesting um, thing is if Casey DeSmith plays Sunday in Montreal and you want to save Thatcher Demko for the Western Conference team in Calgary, that would be two consecutive starts potentially for, for DeSmith, Montreal, and the Islanders when they come back home against Bo Horvat. Right. Yeah, but I mean, I don't think you worry too much about that, especially because, you know, the schedule's really dense the second half of the month, yep. right? I mean, that back that back-to-back Islanders Flames marks, you know, a, a stretch where they'll play um, every other night plus for, for, like, a long time, right? Like, through mid uh, – a full month, basically, where their schedule is just extremely condensed, extremely demanding, and where they're going to ride Demko in a lot of key games against key divisional opponents. I mean, if Demko starts back-to-back, you know, Montreal – Islanders and then the the rest of his work, you know, through the month of November to Smith are two to Smith. Sorry, yeah. to Smith against the Sharks. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like you're still looking at Demko playing, you know, the Flames, the Kraken twice, the Avalanche, the Ducks um, and, and the Golden, Golden Knights. Knights right between the 16th and the 30th of the month. Like that's that's a fairly heavy load, you know, so I, I wouldn't worry too much about Demko having this you know, relatively lean stretch where he does play, say, one game in 10 days. Um, 
you know, he, he, although although I suppose the risk you do run into there is him maintaining this this heater he's on, right? He's so in rhythm. Do you? But but you can't. You know, you don't want to rely on Demko being this in rhythm to get wins anyway. You don't right? want, like you don't he, want to rely on it, but you want to take advantage of it when it's there, right? Oh, for sure. But they but they have like yeah, they have. True. You know, they've given themselves such a head start that I do think prioritizing risk um, from an injury perspective, prioritizing rest from from a you know durability perspective, um, a maintenance perspective in terms of the level of his performance. Uh, for me, that's all good. That's exactly what they should be doing, and they put themselves in a, in a smart position to do it by being bold with resting Demko early in the season before this lead was secured. I think that looks great on them. It's another thing to feel good about from from this dream Canucks start. Yet another thing to be positive about and feel good about, uh, including the the process which led to Elias Pettersson being drafted by the Canucks 2017. Another thing to feel good about that is, for some reason, front of mind for us uh, talking about the Canucks today. By the way, somebody just, texted, <laughs> somebody just texted in, if the Canucks lose to the Leafs, that completely cancels out the good start. Losing to the Leafs is unacceptable. Oh, come on. Come on. Come on. D- Hey, hey, at least charge them rent if you're going to let them take up that much space in your head. <laughs> but, I mean, it would still be nice to see them uh, to see them beat the Leafs on Saturday. But it doesn't cancel out the good start. Yeah, but who cares? Way. Like, fundamentally, who cares? It's one game against a, a mid-team. No. Like, the, 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 you, you want to you sudden the Leafs, don't care about it. Yeah, but you still That's my advice. Them. You can't, like, losing them and being like, well, we don't really care anyways. It's like, yeah, whatever. And the players, you know the players care. The players want to go into they Toronto do. and win. Dude, the organization cares. Yeah. Like, it matters. But I'm just saying, like, at some point, at some point, you know, don't don't be little brother. Don't be little brother. Yeah, but I think you one of the ways you do that is by winning on the ice. I yeah, get what you're course. saying, but like, go go beat them on Saturday. I don't know. Anyways, uh, we'll, just treat it just treat it as an assumption. Is yeah. my point. Okay, okay, I see what you're saying. Uh, you know? we, we will wrap it up there. Yeah, don't 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 look at it as a mountain to climb. Just do it as another piece of business to attend to. Uh, on yep. on the road trip, but we'll wrap it up there. It's a, an early edition of Canuck Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah coming up next uh, because of the early start time. Of course, Canucks and Senators at four. Batch and Randeep will be on the call uh, right here. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow for more Canucks talk on Sportsnet 650.